One particular, I ran, I arrested him three times. I arrested him when I was a constable, a sergeant, and an inspector. And I remember him and my two kids. I made a day off, went to the seaside, and as we pulled into the car park, this guy pulls in behind me, and he gets out with a few heavies. 1981 was the year of the hunger strike, the, the, the Bobby Sands' death. I think I'm right in saying it was 1:17 a.m. on the 5th of May. That whole period, 1981. I spent in the back of Land Rovers, knee-deep in fish and chip papers and uh, empty cases of plastic batten rounds and the branch, the special branch got information that I was going to be taken out. I was whisked out and had to live in a police station for undercover for nine months. Um, Stephen, thank you very much for joining me. Um, I appreciate you, appreciate you coming to take the time. Um, second RUC officer I spoke to, I spoke to Colin Breen before. Great interview, very, very nice man. Um, you might give us an idea of uh, like where where it was that you grew up, what the area was like. Um, you grew up uh like pre like kind of pre troubles. Um, and then sure. and into in into the conflict too. You know. Yeah. Well, my full name is William Charles Stephen White, and the William will give some of your listeners some idea of the background, and the Charles Stevens comes from my grandfather on my mother's side who was Charlie Stevens and before partition he was a riveter uh, working on the ships in Belfast including the Titanic so I have his riveters union card from 1907 so <clears throat> it's not that far back in my life or my generation that there were those who had influenced me as a child who remember Ireland as part of the British Empire or pre-partition or whatever way you wish to describe it. So my family would be from a, a unionist pro-service military uh, and other organisations, um, but mostly industrial working class people who had moved into Belfast during the Industrial Revolution and um, lived on one side of the river, uh, the Lagan, the side where the shipbuilding is, which was predominantly Protestant, as opposed to the other side, which is predominantly Dockers and, and Catholic nationalists. So sadly, even the river divided my family. And I'm talking about only two generations before me. Uh, when I came out of my grandmother's house as a little boy, age four or five, there was the murals. So I'm talking about the late 1950s, King William of Orange painted in, you know, 15 foot uh, paintings across the uh, the street. So uh, my family came from a, an orange background, something which I rejected, which we can come about later. But, you know, I, I am definitely from that Protestant unionist uh, pro-service uh, type of upbringing. I was actually brought up in a very religious family, um, very evangelical Baptist. And the interesting story about that is my father was a tough street fighting guy who forged his age, fought the Japanese in World War II, came back tattooed, plenty of experience, and then falls in love with my mother, who's a little, uh, the youngest of the family. He was the oldest of his family, the tough guy. She was the spoiled little girl, but very religious and proper, and basically said, if you want to be with me, you're going to have to start getting involved with the church. So he stopped drink. Um, there was no alcohol in my house as I, when we grew up. The biggest thrill was on uh, FA Cup final day when my dad was allowed a bottle of cider and I was allowed to sip from the, the, the cap. So um, I'm not saying we were puritanical, but it was that sort of Protestant, evangelical, um, 
literally biblical following type of upbringing that I was in. Now that was me. I'm talking about up until maybe eleven or twelve, and then like most young guys, you you rebel against all that. But that, that's if that gives you some flavor of, of my upbringing. Very much working class, Protestant, uh, shipyard workers who had served in World War One, World War Two. Remind me, what, what year were you born? I was born 1954, which is okay. really only nine years after the end of World War II. And, and, and an interesting fact, which I only found out later, I buried an old uncle recently, and he told me that Will, again, my father was William Samuel. I'm William Charles Stephen. My son's William Peter. It's just a throwback from way back to William I days, I suppose. But he told me that um, his big brother, my dad, didn't return from World War II until 1948. You tend to think that, you know, the war ended in 1945, everybody came back home, but he was actually policing the peace. So he would have still been on the aircraft carriers, mopping up any Japanese or, or preparing for any retaliation or, or, or uh, sort of rekindling of the war. So when you think about it, the trouble started in 1968 or what we call the, the current troubles. So some of those men and women who'd served in World War II as teenagers, they were still only in their late 30s, early 40s, when they were either in the British Army or had joined the police or were recalled uh, into reservists. So, you know, the older I get, and I'm an old man, I was 69 years old yesterday. Um, you know, so um, the, older, the older I get, the more I realise time really is compressed. When I look at World War One and see all those black and white photographs and so on, it's another world. But I guess men that I served along with, military and police, some of them actually had World War II service. In the same way that my son and my grandson think of, you know, I served in a like a, in a different planet when there were the troubles and people were killing each other and policemen were being killed and all sorts of mayhem was going on in, in Northern Ireland. They, they see that almost in black and white, so to speak. Um, first of all, happy, happy birthday anyway. I, I didn't know that. Um, and okay, so yeah, actually, I like, like I said, I, I, I interviewed Billy Hutchins in a couple hours ago, and he was born in 1955, so yeah. he was uh, like you, kind of like mid teens when the troubles began officially, but but obviously, there was a big uh, there was a big heating, heating up and simmering before that. Um, so yeah. when you were in like your coming into your teen years and stuff, like. Do, do you remember what what your thoughts were on the on the conflict going on? If if I had asked you to explain at the time, like Stephen, yeah. what's, what's happening? Why, why are these people fighting? Do, do you know Do you know what you what you'd have told me? Yeah, well, I mean, some of those prejudices that exist today and certainly existed in the past that st sadly stereotypes people. You know, I know there are people who think that anyone who served in the Royal Lost Constabulary is a demon. You know that we are less than human. And we are legitimate targets, to use that terribly obscene uh, label that we had. Uh, likewise, I, I'm old enough to remember a period when Catholics, whether they were nationalist, republic, or, or no political views, were seen, because we never never knew any, none, none lived in my area, we didn't go to school with them, didn't play sport with them. So they were seen as the other. And there was always this concern that, you know, they didn't agree with partition. So they're anti-British, they're anti-states. There's always that sort of suspicion. Um, but the reality is you never you never met anybody. Um, the only I had only one Catholic friend. And I'll, I'll tell you about that story in, in, in a minute. But 
you know, I, I suspect that it's the same old thing. There's them and us. So if I'd been brought up as a young Catholic nationalist stroke Republican, I would have probably hated the police, whether I'd even met a police officer or not. And in the same way, I know that in my family, because some of my family were in the Orange Order, there was this feeling that, you know, Catholicism, Roman Catholicism was wrong and uh, Roman Catholicism equal nationalism, which is anti-British and we are British and we have served the crown and we have fought the war. And so there was all that sort of horrible stuff. And yet at the same time, we were crossing the border, camping in Bray, going to, you know, my father loved going down south uh, for holidays, uh, even though he was in the heart of a Protestant East Belfast working class area. But I had I had an idyllic childhood. I grew up in a period where it was safe to walk the streets, literally to walk to school, even when you were six or seven years old, to get a bus into town. Um, you know, I'm sure there were paedophiles and all sorts of things around at the time. But there was no publicity. There was no concerns. There was no fear. And uh, as a child, I mean, I joined the, the Cubs, joined the Scouts, became a Scout leader, carried a sheath knife, um, played for football teams in East Belfast, all hard guys, you know. And in a sense, I, I had a great upbringing. But I suppose what picked me out a little bit from the I was the first child ever in my family, both families, my dad's and my mum's, to pass the 11 plus and go to grammar school. I was the first person ever to go to university. You know, my mother and father had to leave school at 14. Um, they lived in a house with an outside toilet. Um, I didn't see a shower until I was, you know, probably 10 or 11 years old. You, you washed in the sink or a tin bath. And that, that sounds like um, otherworldly. But uh, as I said, I am an old man, but <clears throat> I actually think I had a, a tremendous upbringing. But then reality kicked in. So if I was born in 54, I was about 13, 14 when things started to take uh, a bad turn. And um, there's a local football team up here called Glen Torren, very much associated with East Belfast. Their football ground is literally within the shadow of the shipyard cranes. Um, myself and a lot of guys, we'd have followed them home and away. We were footballers ourselves, uh, soccer players. And um, one Catholic who lived in the Protestant area had joined the local church Cubs and Scouts with me was football mad, a chap called Dennis O'Flaggery. I'll never forget him because every time I get a chance, I, I talk about him. And he was just one of us until, if you recall, or certainly Billy Hutchinson would recall, why well, about 69, 1969, these local defence organisations started to spring up before the Ulster Defence Association. So we had the Wood, Woodville Defence Association, you had Woodstock Tartan, you had the Young Newton, all these gangs of young men who were being mobilized and eventually would become paramilitaries, but they were just tough guys who were protecting their area as they saw it, literally a defense association against Catholic nationalist Republican violence in the same way that the IRA grew from, I mean, the modern provost grew from the tax that Protestants were doing on the Catholic housing areas. So we were at a youth club one night and this guy, Dennis, would have been about 15 he was going with a girl about 13 called Rosie. And in comes the youth club, about six or seven guys in what was the standard uniform in those days, Wrangler denim jacket, Wrangler denim jeans, Doc Martin boots or steel toe cap boots. And they kicked the bejeebers out of him because he was a Catholic. And then the girls kicked the bejeebers out of the girl because she was going with a Catholic boy. And I froze 
And I wasn't a shrinking valet, but I just couldn't do anything. And to my shame, to this day, I'm still ashamed of myself that I, I didn't take a kicking with him to protect him. Uh, it was just the sheer fear of these numbers, these guys coming in. And I have no doubt that was one of the seminal moments in my life which made me think, I'm going to have to do something about this, which is why I did join the police and why I became involved in uh, both putting away nationalists and uh, loyalists. So, I mean, to me, if they, they were criminals, they were criminals. Um, but certainly my upbringing was pro-British, unionist, loyalist. But my belief is and always will be, once you put the uniform on, you're neither affiliated to one or the other. Whatever people try to label you as, um then and i guess now uh can you could you understand the the argument behind the the wanting wanting the six counties to rejoin the the 32 like like could could you could you see that as being a reasonable you know like like a reasonable thing that that uh that irish people think think they're entitled to absolutely not of course as a uh 12 13 14 year old boy sort of um brainwashed into thinking, you know, Armageddon's coming and um, the IRA are coming over the hill and um, all the Protestants are going to be slaughtered and we're the minority uh, in Ireland, despite being the majority and all that. You know, your, your head's filled with that nonsense. And uh, it is nonsense because as my dad and others would say, you know, we all, if it only realised, we, we were all suffering, all the working class people. You know, Labour labor and, and socialism really didn't get a look in. It was divided on orange and green, but as has often been said, the working class Protestants, the working class Catholic, that's so much more in common. Now, the fact that one preferred the British state and what it represented and all its traditions, going back kings and queens to William the Conqueror, wherever you want to start the, the, the ball rolling, to others who were looking at it from a more Irish, you know, the, the chieftains and all the tribes and all the Irish history which I was never taught. I mean, that's the sad thing. And I went to a, a British Protestant school. We were taught English history. You weren't taught Irish history. Um, but the older I get, and certainly as a police officer, once you start going through that um, uh, sort of indoctrination of realising, you know, a lawbreaker is a lawbreaker. A good guy's a good guy and a bad guy's a bad guy. And, you know, we're trying to do our best, as usual, stuck in the middle. Um the idea of having a, a, a united Ireland doesn't give me a problem at all. What what does give me a problem is, is violence, trying to achieve an objective by violence, either keeping Catholics down or preventing nationalists having a united Ireland or trying to get a Brits out. You know, all that nonsense, really. When you think about it, the Scottish nationalists had a referendum, not one bullet fired. You know, so to, to me... And I know there's been talk, Michelle O'Neill and others have been quoted as saying there was no alternative. Catholics and nationalists felt there was no alternative but to take on the state and to kill British soldiers or to uh, do their, their bombing campaign or whatever. I actually think that's an, a nonsense. If there'd been better leadership on both sides, who'd said, look, this is a divided society. We've got to do something to make things more balanced. And I know there were some attempts, you know, whether it be Sunningdale or wherever in the 70s, um, but uh, I, I, despite all my upbringing and the fact that I proudly consider myself as a British police officer and part of the British establishment and I've been awarded and given various uh, honours and titles and so on to do with the British state, I'm a proud Irishman. 
if there was United Ireland tomorrow and it was the majority there, I wouldn't have a difficulty at all. I know some people would rather die than than than, than uh, be be part of our. Not at all. I'm I'm actually very proud. In fact, no matter where I am in the world, I usually introduce myself first and foremost as an Irishman or a Northern Irishman, and um, you know I, I, I'm certainly not English. And you know that 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 is one of the defining moments in my life. I remember as a young superintendent, I was staffing the chief constable at the time, Sir, Sir Hugh Annesley, and uh, Ireland were playing rugby against England. And he said, "Why do you not support? Why do you support Ireland when most of them are from uh, the Republic?" I said, "Well, I, I know what I'm not. I'm, I'm not English, so of course I'm going to support Ireland." You know, okay, it's a mixed team, and I think that sets an example for how perhaps other sports and, and life should should go. But um, yeah, I, I honestly think uh, it's absolutely legitimate that people want this isle, this island, and this country uh, reunified. And um, if it was done peacefully and democratically, and obviously there's a whole plan required in terms of the economics and so on, and what would what would law enforcement look like? Uh, obviously, that's a big interest to me. Um, but just look what's happening at the minute. Half of the senior team in the Garda Shikana were trained in the IEC. You know, the colleagues of mine. And uh, we have uh, cross-fertilisation. People who have served in the Garda are, are, are working up in the north. So, you know, um, all these things can be resolved without um, major trauma. Um, th- that's interesting. Okay, the you're 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 saying the the like the, the argument behind it and, and the wanting it is perfectly legitimate, but but the legitimacy of it stops when when violence comes in. W- would you apply the same like Would you apply the same logic to we'll say like the IRA of the nineteen tens, nineteen twenties, like the Michael Collins and Devil Eras? Were they were they like uh, acting immorally or acting wrong by by bringing violence into it? It, it, it's difficult for me because everything has to be contextualized and I, I prefer to talk about experience. Yes, we learn lessons from history and the old saying about if we don't learn, we repeat history and so on. One one of the things that, that does concern me is that, you know, the pro-treaty and anti-treaty, the, the fact that people turned on themselves, comrades turned on themselves. And you, you, you see that a lot, even in, in today's Northern Ireland, where you have had the IRA, for example, in so many manifestations and the INLA, and you know, and I remember having this debate in New York. Uh, I was part of a project where people were taken away to safe areas. So we went to New York, we went to San Diego, or we went to Atlanta and Georgia. People who were police officers, people who were former terrorist ex prisoners, and so on, and we were given the opportunity to talk to each other. And I remember one guy. Uh, there were all these different exercises facilitated and enabled by clever men, clever men than me, and. There was a, one of the ones was the, the empty chair. You know, you could put someone in the empty chair and tell them what the issue was. It was almost like psychotherapy. Or you could place someone in who was with you in the chair. And I remember this guy, this INLA man, putting me in the chair and saying, you know, Steve, you and I really, we're just the same. You know, we're just products of where we were brought up. And, uh, you know, we were just combatants. We were just doing our duty. I said, how dare you? Don't ever try to put me in the same box as yourself. You guys killed each other. Never mind. Never mind what other atrocities, you know. Uh, and 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 there, there, so there is some issue. So that's both moralistic, I suppose, and uh, looking at it from a from a criminal point of view. Um, an organization that is prepared to kill, torture, 
and uh, and abduct and, and and destroy families of their so-called comrades. Um, that 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 gives me a problem. Um, that's maybe not answering your question, a fool. But what what I'm simply saying is, yes, people may well have good intentions. People may well form up organisations and bring an end or bring a success to, to to what they've tried to do, either, you know, an independent Ireland or the the, the partition or the 26 and the 32 and, and, and all that. But even what went on afterwards indicated to me that, you know, there was no final solution. There was no um, perfect, perfect ending. Um, so maybe that's not a very articulate way of answering it, but, but I do have issues around people forcing their way or getting their way through strength and murder and mayhem as opposed to negotiated settlement. And there's plenty of examples in the world at the minute where, you know, it's it's happening again. Fair enough. No, I understand. Um, okay, so before uh, before you joined the RUC, you spent some time in the, in the UDR, which for anyone doesn't know was, uh, I think at the time it was the biggest... I don't know if the words battalion or, or regiment. Biggest regiment, yeah. Right, but big, biggest regiment in the, in the British yeah. Army. Yeah, you you might tell us about um like when you joined. Um, yeah. I I was just a typical lad. Um, seven sixteen. I met the woman who was to become my wife. Sadly, that marriage didn't last. But that, that just to say, you know, like a lot of boys in the seventies. If you weren't going with a girl, you weren't getting engaged by the time you were 18 or 19, there's something wrong with you, you know. So uh, I know times have changed rapidly, but in my day, you know, a lot of guys, you met your girl, your your future wife at school, uh, you you had the same circle of mates playing football and so on. What what changed for me with I, I suppose was I was fortunate to go to university. I was fortunate to work in 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 industry. And um my life was simply around my girlfriend, football. And motorbikes. I've always still ride motorbikes. So to me, I had an idyllic lifestyle. My father was a cop and he was a former B-special. So again, for me, those were norms. So the sight, the smell of his wet uniform hanging in the cloakroom, the sight of a gun uh, strapped to his waistband, <laughs> Big deal, you know that. That's just like somebody coming home from work with a saw and a hammer. You know, their dad was a joiner, so um, all those things were normal until sixty nine, seventy, when my dad was being sent up to Derry. He was a motorbike cop. He rode, rode the motorbike around Strandtown, a very leafy suburb part of Belfast, not not too not too valid. Suddenly, he was coming home, and I could hear him talking about his friends who'd been injured or mutilated by petrol bombs, burning their faces and stuff, you know. So it started to get a bit more personal. Um, but still, my life carried on. That was my dad's job. Um, I left school at 18. Again, that working class ethic, you know, yeah, university, you've got the grades and all that, but, you know, you're a white. You're one of us. Get out there and earn some money. So which is what I did. So I was picked up by Glaxo, a big pharmaceutical company, as a training manager. And did th things like three months in the shop floor, three months with the uh, salesman, three months with the accountants, uh, marketing team, all that sort of stuff. And while I was on the shop floor, this guy came up to me and said, um, what age are you? And I think I was 18 at the time, just about to turn 19. And he said, have you ever thought of joining the UDR? 
Well, I thought he meant the UDA, which as far as I was concerned were the scum of the earth. These were the guys that had beaten up my Catholic mate. And he, he said, you know, the UDR is part of the British Army. And something clicked in me that, aha, this might give me the chance to do something to, in a sense, address what I saw as bullying. And I know it sounds ridiculous, but that's how I saw terrorism, bullying. My mother had got caught in the bloody Friday bombs. She had been showered with glass walking past Oxford Street when those five people were killed. You know, I knew my dad had been shot at. I knew his friends had been hurt uh, in, in the Troubles. Um, it still seemed distant to me, but suddenly when this guy said, why don't you do this? I did a little bit of research. Obviously, this was 1974. The UDR had been established in 1970. It was part of the Hunt Report to try to do away with what was the B-Specials and seen as a, as a, a uh, a Protestant force within within a Protestant police department, this this Protestant reserve, this special constabulary. Um, but as I say, because my dad was one, I just assumed there were there were good guys. But I I joined the Ulster Defence Regiment. Now before I come to that, let me just say one thing. When I was growing up, um, I was fifteen and I was beaten up by the police. Like all young lads, I have a uh, less than perfect um, teenage. And this sounds horrible, but people would go to watch rats. And I'm sure if you speak to any young Catholic, any young Protestant lad from working class area, they'll tell you there's those who are in the front line throwing the petrol bombs or, or, or trying to attack the other side. Most people are going down to watch because it's exhilarating. It's, it's, it's something that's happening, you know, and I, I hate that term recreational riding, but in those days, Catholics were burning out Protestants. Protestants were burning out Catholics. It was literally a couple of hundred yards away from where I lived. I lived in the Hollywood Road, which is off the Newton Ards Road, where the Provos were born. The Battle of St. Matthews, I think it was either 1970 or 71, when Catholics were being attacked by Protestants. Then the gunmen of the, the stickies, the official IRA, were being accused of not defending Catholics. Some guys climb up into the church in St. Matthews, a Catholic church, and shoot people. Uh, uh, I think three Protestants were killed in one night. And again, only last year, as I was burying an old uncle, he told me that one of his mates was Ginger, was his nickname, was one of those people that was shot. So that's how local Northern Ireland is. People, everybody knows something about something, you know. And So there's an uncle of mine, loses a friend on the night that I'm down watching rioting. The British Army, of course, were on the streets and they batten charged uh, and the, the, the young Protestants who were attacking the Catholics. To me, it was like a, a, a fisticuffs, only worse. You know, we're throwing stones at each other, throwing petrol bombs. I, I'm not making myself out to be a goody-goody, but I didn't do anything other than watch. I just thought this was... Uh, accelerating is the best time I could, I could... You know, it was like almost observing something, like uh, Napoleonic Wars, two sides fighting each other, you know. And uh, me and my mates, we were all more interested in football, but we're watching it. Anyway, to cut a long story short, baton charge happens... I'm chased and start running with everybody else up an alleyway. Someone kicks the backyard open in a house, in, in a terraced house. And everybody's running through the house. So if you can imagine, there's a man and his wife sitting watching TV and all these young kids are running through the back door and, and through the front door. And um, the cops come in. Cops come in the front door. Cops close the backyard. About 30 of us are caught like trapped rats. And... Um, my immediate thought is, I am in trouble. My dad's a cop. He will kill me if I have let down the family name. My mother 
God love her, this religious woman will be so disappointed that her son was anywhere near the trouble. My schoolmasters will be so disappointed I'll not get finishing my O-levels and I'll, I'll be going to jail because I knew people like I knew were going to jail, people I knew had been interned. So somebody pushed me forward and this sergeant gave me a, a, a cracker of a, a, a rabbit punch and I lost my breath and of course he said, what are you doing here? And No uncertain time. I, I said, I'm visiting my granny because my grandmother literally lived on the other side of the road and he said, yeah, sure you are. And then he grabbed me by the scruff of the neck and the arse of my trousers, threw me out in the alleyway, and I realised I was going to be let free. And the relief. And then I looked up, and of course, there's a whole row of cops who <laughs> give me what I deserved, I suppose, for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And uh, one of my mates, I think it is, his nose broken, and I got a bit of a hiding. But the two of us laughed about it afterwards. I remember going back and thinking, at least I'm not as bad as you, or, you know. And my only fear was if my dad finds out, because some of those cops would probably have worked with my father. Now, the reason why I tell that story, and the reason why it's so vivid in my brain, I come from a police family. All that proved to me is I was a bad boy. I was a stupid boy. I deserved everything I got because the cops are the heroes. If I'd been a young Republican Catholic, that proves it. All those pro those police officers are horrible, vindictive, anti-Catholic thugs. But I, I can't explain it any better than that. It was ingrained in me that law and order, British Crown Forces, are right. So when this guy says to me, do you want to join? And I suddenly realised, actually, I could be one of those guys. Uh, I jumped at the chance. And... I did my basic training, and within six weeks, the major called me into his office and said, White, you have A-levels. Uh, we're looking for officers. Would you take a commission and go to Sandhurst, which is the military um, training academy? I had, I had no idea what a commission was. I'd never heard of Sandhurst. And I said, no, thank you, sir. I'm more than happy to be a private soldier. So I sat in the Landover, and it's probably the best decision I've ever made in my life. I said in Landovers with men who had been evacuated from Dunkirk, who had fought in Korea, who had been in the Battle of Arnhem. You know, my staff sergeant had, had been shot and, and wounded in Dunkirk. This was 1974. So if you think about it, he had probably been 18 or 19. He was now an old man. You know, in my view, a really old man. He'd have been about 50. And, and uh, the war stories they told, the, the life uh, experiences they had, and lo and behold, they all loved me because I was this young kid. So I became a lance corporal and a corporal and a platoon sergeant. So I, was, I ended up leading all these people who were maybe twice or maybe nearly three years, uh, three times my age. Uh, I played football for the regiment. We ran the British Army uh, orienteering team and won the championship. Um, I, I did Now Megan uh, walk. First time I've ever been out of Northern Ireland, uh, they, they, they sent me to... Um, uh, Holland to take part in, in, in sport. So I had the experiences of a British soldier, both in terms of sports and patrolling the streets of Belfast. I left the, the company I was with to go to university because the Glaxo at that time had like two streams of training managers. If you were a young uh, graduate, slightly higher salary and faster promotion. In my case, I had A-levels, 18-year-old, less life experience, slightly less salary, and the path was a little bit slower. So I left the company 
went to university, read economics and business studies with the intent to come back. But I enjoyed my life as a part-time soldier so much. I never went to a lecture before lunchtime. I was always on patrol in Belfast. I, summers, I went full-time and, and uh, learned everything from jumping in and out of helicopters. I became a, an army marksman in terms of shooting. I had a fantastic sporting career as well as being a, a, a patrol a platoon sergeant. So by the time I joined the police then at 23, I graduated from Queen's University within a few days, was in the police training depot. Um, I, I was already, in my view, a man, an experienced man. I was 23. The average age of a recruit then was 18 and a half. So I was the old guy. Um, I was the old guy with medal, medals on my chest. I'd been a, a British soldier, albeit part-time, albeit the Ulster Defence Regiment. But... I thank God for that because if I joined the, 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 the RUC at 18 or hadn't been in the UDR and learned how to handle myself and, and manage men, and that's, you know, I'm a great believer in leadership, by example, visible leadership, all those sort of things. Um, I did my apprenticeship in the same way my dad learned to be a joiner or a fitter in the shipyard. I learned to be, I hope, some sort of a leader of men, um, literally on the shop floor, in this case, in the back of land, army land rovers and then helicopters and so on. Before if I, I could, sorry, if, if I could take it back to to, to your to your UDR, um, what was there any instances where you actually clashed uh, with with some paramilitary, be it be it a uh, Republicans or loyalists? Only loyalists, I have to say, because um, we were based in a in a loyalist area in in East Belfast. Um, yes, on border patrols. Um, I would have volunteered for everything, you know, because I was young. And then a few other young guys joined. So there was a little cadre of us, 18, 19, 20-year-olds, fit as a fiddle, always winning assault course or, or football or tug-of-war or whatever it was. Um, we were the, the sports band, but we also had to prove ourselves. So if they needed anybody to volunteer for anything, um, be dropped off in the border um, to crawl across a field and spend the night watching some IRA quartermaster's house and logging any cars that were going in and out. I mean, I, I did all that, but the, that was always covert. There was no, um, there, there's no uh, interaction, certainly no gunfire or battles of, of that sort. But the UDR was kept out of all that public order um, interaction, you know, so at that time they were seen as being either not trusted or not trained enough. Uh, and the RUC was would take the lead in public order, but I do remember being asked to, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> to get involved in um, searches of loyalist pubs in areas where it was expected that there'd be weapons hidden, and for some of the UDR men who lived in those particular areas, it was quite nerve wracking because you know everybody identified you. Um, I lived in a relatively safe part of Belfast. I mean, you're still only talking about a mile away. But a mile in Belfast can be a, a, a long distance, as opposed to living 100 yards away from a street where you're, you're, where you're patrolling. Right. Um, there was, um, it, it, it's known and it was encouraged by, by like a lot of uh, UV, UVF leaders and so on. They would encourage their men to join the UDR because you're not going to get better training, really, yeah. than British Army training. <laughs> um, I mean, most... Most notably, uh, Robin Jackson, who I'm sure anyone who's familiar with the Troubles would would, would know was a, was a dual member. Was there yeah. any, did you come across anything like that in your time? Anyone uh, 
anyone in, in also in a loyalist uh, paramilitary group or or maybe later going to them after getting UDR training? Uh, no, I'm not. I'm not going to deny that it happened, but it didn't happen in my platoon. It didn't happen in my company, and I think that was because we had fantastic um, supervisors. As I say, we had leaders. We had men who had literally fought in World War Two, and in other conflicts, Korea, in Palestine, and so on. And we we were run like a military outfit, and we we were uh, good sportsmen as well. And 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 I'm not being too sort of. I don't want to paint the picture we were all perfect in, in, in anything, but what we did have was the vast, vast majority were Protestants. A number, a substantial number, were in the Orange Order. Um, some other platoons and some other uh, bodies within the UDR that I came across, you could see there was a sectarianism. There was a, a, a deep hated, a deep seated hatred of all things Catholic and nationalist. Um, but I, I can honestly say I've never heard of anybody from my particular um, company or battalion. That was the uh, battalion that covered the Hollywood and East Belfast area, uh, getting involved in anything. But uh, it would not surprise me that the the organisation was or could be infiltrated because, as you say, what better way to get training? What better way to be given the names, addresses and photographs of IRA suspects? And... Um, at that time, there's a very different atmosphere in 1974 than what there is in, say, 1994. You know, 1974, it was almost like dog eat dog. You know, this this is this is civil war. This is either going to go one way or the other. You know, we're fighting for survival, and um, I really hated the paramilitaries, um, even within my own area. I mean, I had to drive through. I say I was rode motorbike, so I'd be stopped on my motorbike even going on duty to the UDR. By uh, UDA thugs, you know, standing there with their batons and so on, and then of course, once they recognised me who I was or whatever, you'd be waved through. But we'll be tied for some poor Catholic, um, trying to get through a barricade. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I sometimes you forget just how bad it was. You know, nineteen seventy two was, I think, the worst year, but. All those years in the seventies, I mean, I remember being as I left school in nineteen seventy three. There were three IRA men blew themselves up. We heard the bomb going off when we were sitting in class, and I remember going up to, to look at what was left of the 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 vehicle. It was a car bomb. It had exploded prematurely, and there's bits of bodies lying about. You know, it's macabre. It was um, it was like living in Beirut or somewhere at those time. You know, it, it, it was. I think people forget just how violent Belfast was, and I'm talking about Belfast, but obviously. Other parts of the country as well, right? Of course. Okay. What what year? Uh, what year? What, <coughs> what age were you joined the RUC? Sorry, you, you you said you were twenty three. What what year was that? You, you joined. The I joined the, the the RUC in nineteen seventy eight. Very good. Um, okay, so you, you you came in already having probably like a arguably a better standard of training than than most in it. Um, you you did your you did your training. How long then before you were like out in the street? Did did you start off on patrol? Yeah, like everyone in the police, and that's one of its great strengths, I believe. Whether you're a a future chief constable or whatever, you know, we all start at the um, at, at ground level. I I, I left um, the training centre and went to my first police station in November 1978, and. Uh, I do a lot of talking about leadership and the importance of role models. And I was very fortunate. I had two sergeants 
one for about a year and a half, who was tremendous, ran a really tight ship. There was no nonsense went on, uh, no drinking on duty, no over-violent uh, approach to prisoners or whatever. Um, and then he was replaced by another guy who was probably an alcoholic, lazy, and all the things that you don't want, who both of them saw something in me. The first guy basically expected me to do well and would give me lots of responsibilities and give me a hard time if I didn't ship up. The other guy saw me as a good excuse for him to uh, delegate and, you know, so, you know, a lot of people know me as Stevie. Stevie White is how I've known in sort of police circles. I said, Stevie boy, you know, you're going to go places to help you. Instead of me checking all the other constables' work, you do it. <laughs> so a night shift from about two o'clock in the morning, I was reading all the other guys' files. So if I was only dealing with, say, 10 drunken driving, assault on police, theft, I was reading the other 20 guys' files as well. So I was learning about sexual assaults and other offences that I hadn't personally arrested people for. Um, it was a fantastic training, which meant within two years, you're allowed to sit the sergeant's exam. I came in the top three or top four of the sergeant's exam, which brought me under national notice. So I was then sent over to England for three days of home office testing in relation to psychological aspects, intellect and so on. And then was put in what was called the fast stream, the accelerated promotion. Um, so within a very short time, um, I was moving up the ranks. The one thing that I, I, I remember was that 1981 was the year of the hunger strike, the, the, the Bobby Sands' death. I think I'm right in saying it was 1.17 a.m. on the 5th of May. And like a lot of young cops, because I was fit and, and, and could handle myself, we were put into units that were mobile units, mobile support units. And I was up in uh, Londonderry, Stroke Derry, on the night it happened. And when uh, Bobby Sands died, we were turfed out on the streets. But within a day or two, there was rioting everywhere going on in Belfast. And I was stationed in Dunmurray, which covered an area at that time, which included Twinbrook and had the DeLorean factory. So you had John DeLorean and his famous gullwing car being built and the factory was being attacked. So we were sent down to protect the factory which if my memory's right, there's about a quarter of a million pounds worth of damage done to it. And this was one of the like the jewels in the crown of the British economy, how they'd got this American invest investment coming in to help Belfast in one of its deprived areas. And um, it was the first time I was shot at. So this IRA sniper took uh, a few pot shots at myself and a few other guys. And another guy who, like me, had some military training, we tried to return fire. Neither of us pulled the trigger because we couldn't see exactly where he was shooting from. We think it was from a house, uh, the roof of a house. But there were people in between us, so we couldn't fire. And that's one of the differences, in my opinion. You know, We tried to minimise casualties. And uh, <clears throat> the that whole period, 1981, I spent in the back of Land Rovers, knee-deep in fish and chip papers and uh, empty cases of plastic batten rounds and you know, it was it was a, a pretty militarized situation, and yet 
here's the thing. We were still expected to be ordinary cops. So one day in the middle of all this, the sergeant says to me, uh, White, tomorrow don't come in to, uh, to work with the unit. You know, you don't need your shield, your baton gun and all that stuff. Have your best uniform on. You're going to uh, the local primary school to take kids through their cycling proficiency test. So, you know, you've been watching your mates getting hammered. You're literally dealing with death and destruction. And then you turn up the next day and take kids through what was the Tufty Club or, you know, how to cross the road or how to um, ride a bicycle. Um, and I think that was one of the great strengths of the RUC. Now, I, I lecture on this subject about you should never make a police officer a soldier and you should never try to turn a soldier into a police officer. You're either one or the other. One fights to kill, the other one serves to preserve the peace, etc., etc. But in Northern Ireland, we used to proudly say that the RUC was special. And a lot of us still believe it, by the way. We were given a very special, certainly a very extraordinary task. We were asked to behave almost like infantry and yet at the same time be public servants and good police officers and help little uh, women across the road and look for lost dogs and, and do that diligently and give it the same attention. Now, a lot of guys couldn't. You know, if you look at the suicide figures within the RUC, 20 killed themselves between 72 and 82, 20 more between 82 and 87. So the rate doubled, 20 in 10 years, 20 in five years. I did a bit of work on that and... Um, Spent some time in America looking how to prevent that or deal with it, minimize it. But what was happening was a lot of young cops were being sent to the border or sent into really tough areas, West Belfast, London Derry, Cross McLean, South Armagh, um, working with the army, jumping in and out of helicopters, being away from home weeks at a time, uh, lying in ditches, doing searches, kicking in doors. And after two or three years, you know, they almost became like soldiers. They had a great mentality, great team spirit, good at certain things, but weren't ordinary cops. Then they've done their three years and they're sent to some leafy suburb in Belfast and asked to be able to do the shoplifting and deal with a, a little prang. Someone's Mercedes has been scraped in the car park. And they're being told off for not having those skills when previously they were doing what they thought was heroic work and being recognised by military colleagues and, 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 and police commanders. So a lot of those young guys, they killed themselves. The average age of police suicide was 21. And, um, you know, the, the, without going into it too deeply, there's a, a, a well-known psychological uh, aspect called anomie, where you lose sense of purpose, where you lose a sense of group and, and, and identity uh, and support. And I have no doubt that um, that was one of the things while we thought, and this is why I thank God I was 23 when I joined, because I didn't have any of that stuff. If you're an 18 or 19-year-old young uh, police officer who's afraid to show that you're frightened, so therefore you maybe overreact and be the tough guy, and then suddenly you're exposed later that you can't even do a, a road traffic accident, but you're brilliant with a machine gun or jumping in and out of a helicopter or all this, the military skills, they just, they just lost their way. And alcohol and the availability of a gun uh, certainly didn't help things, you know. But that's maybe going into the topic for another day. Actually, speaking of uh, speaking of nineteen eighty one, that was the year I believe. Uh, sorry, it was nineteen eighty, but but John Weir, who himself was a an RUC officer, he was uh, convicted. Then he was obviously, if if, if anyone knows about, him, he was working with uh, 
a loose group called the the Glennon Gang, including Robin Jackson, who we mentioned. Uh, when that conviction did happen, you were I think about two or three years into the job. What, what did it did it did it cause like shockwaves within the RUC? Was it like the talk the talk of the town, so to speak? Given that um, such a heinous thing was going on with with uh, with one of your members, it was like very very. It was probably it's probably the best uh, evidence of collusion, you know. Well, it's funny because even today, there are reverberations of the Glenan gang. And, you know, I I have a position, as you probably know, I'm the chairman appointed by the Department of Justice of an organization called the Royal Logical Stabbery GC Foundation. That is an organization which gets very small funding, but we're there to mark the sacrifices and honor the achievements of the Royal Logical Stabbery. And we do that in all sorts of ways with church services, memorials, marches, bursary schemes to support current placing and so on, lectures with partnerships with universities and so on. Um, I hope it doesn't surprise you or anybody else that I would never say that the IUC was perfect or look at the IUC through rose-tinted glasses. There were people who were absolute rogues, as there is in every organisation, whether it be the church, education, anything else, who should never have been in the organisation. But somehow or other, they got in, besmirched the name of others. So those guys... I was probably too young. I, I was just married. I was probably my first child had been born. I was dealing with all the stuff that you deal with in the early part of your career, working 12, 16 hour shifts, coming home, sitting up in the early hours of the night, studying for your sergeant exam, going away to England for a year to the police college to come back as a sergeant. And, you know, so I was very career minded. I have to be honest, when I look back at myself, I must have been extremely energetic, extremely focused. It was the chosen vocation. I gave it everything. Um, those guys that you've talked about, the Jackal, Robin the Jackal, or, or, or the, the other, John Weir, I think there was another horrendous one involved in a, in a, in a murder up in the border of, a, of another colleague. And there was also a, a police officer convicted of, of murder after he had left the police. Somehow he had inveigled himself. And so there, there are three or four, and there was another guy I think was involved in fraud uh, using the police computer for his own profit, buying and selling cars. Those guys would have been so, in a sense, unusual that they, 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 they weren't really registering on my account. You just say, thank God somebody's caught those guys. And it would have been the RUC caught them. And that's the thing, you know, we didn't have an ombudsman. We didn't have internal affairs in the way that it works now with independent bodies. You had the complaints and discipline branch. So the hardest, in my opinion, the people that were hardest on bad cops were other cops. And uh, because I was a career man and uh, always in the forefront of defending the police and so on, whether it be in the media or lecturing or whatever, you know, I, I will never deny that there were, uh, people who should never have been in the police, people who you know destroyed the police reputation and gave ammunition to those that made us think that we're, we're all thugs, or we're all anti-Catholic, or we're all involved in collusion, which to me is a nonsense. The, the vast, vast majority of us are just ordinary men and women put into extraordinary situations where sadly, yes, we come from one part of the community or the other. And that's why I was very involved the more I went up the ranks in trying to make sure that women and Catholic officers were treated as best we could 
because those that denied that there was any misogyny or, or any sectarianism or whatever, you know, they're fooling themselves. The, the RUC was like any other organisation. It's one I am so proud to be part of, still so proud to remember. But it had to learn. It had to improve. You know, what the RUC was like in my dad's time was very different from what it was like in my time. And it was very different from what it was like when I joined to what it was like when I left. And now I have a son serving, and there's no doubt the policing in Northern Ireland is very different in his time. You know, whether it's the use of mobile cameras, the fact that they have body-worn arm uh, cameras, the fact that they have more scientific breakthroughs like DNA, the fact that they can actually go and hold a scene for three days if there's a murder instead of an case, you know, you've got 10 minutes to get out, get out or else you're going to be shot yourself. Um, so I'm rattling on a little bit, you know, but to, to answer your question, those rogues who have been proven to be uh, outliers or renegades or, or, or betrayed everything that a police officer and a police service should do, uh, whilst we had no time for them, it's just seen as almost uh, like they were there, but they were so, they were, they were so, so of so little consequence. And not, I don't mean to the people that they murdered or the people that they betrayed or to the services but for the ordinary working cop as a constable or a sergeant, just say, oh, thank God they've been caught. Thank God they've been got rid of or they've been prosecuted. Uh, we move on. Um, okay, we'll, we, we, we'll get to it. But, but obviously you became uh, you became like like a managing officer, kind of a commanding type of officer uh, later on. Um, did anyone under your command ever get accused or uh, accused of passing information or colluding in some way or... Um, did you ever have to investigate a claim whether it ended up being true or not? No. Never. Uh, never, never. And and, and that, that's why, you know, I mean, uh, if the interview is going to go down a certain route about collusion, one thing, I, 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 I might be um, not the best interviewee in the sense that, you know, uh, it is going to be a very straightforward black and white answer. There's no officer that I've ever uh, been in charge of or worked with that, to my knowledge, was either investigated or suspected in relation to collusion or uh, unprofessional behaviour that could have been seen as either sectarian or or, or any way. What, what was a regular uh, complaint for most police officers, including myself, was um, uh, use of force. And that, and that sadly... Um, for some people, it was almost like a badge of honour, uh, and others as, you know, oh, my goodness, I don't want to get involved in this. So there were those of us who were not afraid to, whether it was kick the doors down or or drag the people out or go straight into uh, the fisticuffs and make arrests, and others who would be maybe a little bit more reticent in case a complaint would damage their career. I always believe that, you know, if, if, you, if you're leading from the front and you're doing your best, um, You've got the law on your side as long as you're using legitimate force. It's proportionate. It's justified. It's probably recorded. Um, I've known five officers who've uh, taken life. Um, uh, all been investigated. One was outside this country, but I was a sergeant when he he um, was a police sniper in another country, and four who who took lives in uh, Northern Ireland. All investigated. All um, vindicated. Um, and all five say it has if not ruined their lives certainly uh, they find it very difficult one in particular can't sleep at night 
when he was actually ordered to take the life of someone who was in the process of stabbing a wife in a domestic situation, a police sniper, and was given the order to take life. So, again, I, I try to make a distinction. Most police officers, despite the fact that we are trained to take life, and we're not only um, uh, permitted to, we're required to take life if it means protecting someone else's life. I mean, I I wouldn't have any choice. If, if someone was coming in now to slit your throat and I had a gun and didn't save your life by taking a life, um, I'd be failing in my duty. You know, so most cops take life uh, or the, the, the use of force pretty seriously. But there was a period, certainly in my career, in the in late 70s and all through the 80s, right up to Drum Cree when I was, you know, an assistant chief constable in the 2000s, ordering the use of batons, plastic batons, uh, water cannons, and so on. As long as you're doing it legally and as long as you're doing it properly and as long as you're recording the decisions and the rationale for the decisions, you have nothing to fear. But that's not to say that uh, we didn't get it wrong on some occasions. But, um, no, I, I, I can honestly say, say and... and I stand to be corrected if anybody can tell me anything otherwise. I can't think of any officer who was ever under any suspicion at all in my command or in any area I worked uh, that was involved in uh, collusion. I see. I see. Um, uh, obviously, it, it was a different time and it wasn't just the RUC. It was it was kind of police and, and army around the world, but it was way, way rougher. Like, like you alluded to, you were only 15 and a bunch of fully grown cops gave you an absolute hiding in an alleyway. Now, yeah. that wasn't someone who was getting interrogated, who was a suspected, uh, who was a suspected terrorist. So I'd have to imagine that back then, some of the things that went on in interrogation rooms would uh, would make you shudder, probably would it? Yeah, I, I, I've no doubt. But again, that that is about society as well. I mean, I would never excuse bad police behaviour. But I do believe in context. As a kid, I saved up some money <clears throat> and did a sort of hitchhiking greyhound bus tour all around America, bummed around, slept on the buses, slept the buses. And I remember a cop attacking me in, in Los Angeles because I had my feet up on a, another seat in a bus station in LA because he thought I was a, 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 some sort of bum. Uh, and, uh, you know, just took a nightstick and whacked me. And, you know... What do you do? Do, do, I, do I make a complaint and 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 uh, the officer gets dismissed? It'd been a nonsense. In those days, things were different. If that was recorded now, of course, it would be tantamount to you know a sackable offence. And, and uh, depending on my ethnicity, uh, a racial issue or whatever, you know. But you know, cops were um, pretty crude, and 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 in some countries that I have worked in recently. Policing is still very crude. I mean, I would say you probably have the most sophisticated model of policing in the world in Northern Ireland, the most accountable, the most overseen, the most reformed. Uh, you, you could argue I would say that, of course. But there's a reason for it. And this, this is where some of the contention does come into the issue. It's very hard for cops to think that after all the loss of life, after all the courage, after the impact on individuals, whether it be suicide, marital breakup, alcoholism, mental health issues, or something, that somehow the cops are being blamed as the, the, the bad guys and the troubles. 
when there were paramilitary groups, as I say, they were killing each other, torturing each other, wrecking their own communities, rattling out on each other. You know, I mean, they were infiltrated with informants and touts of the most horrible type of people you'd want to meet, you know, sex criminals and anything. And if the police in those days were able to use something to maybe get someone to save someone else's life, it's very hard not to justify that. Easy to sit in an office, easy to read a report and see that differently. And, and here's the thing that, that I like to tell people about. As you may know, I volunteered to go to Iraq in 2003, immediately after Saddam Hussein was removed. They wanted a police officer of senior rank. So I was the most senior British police officer to serve in southern Iraq. And I mentored a man with over 2,500 tribesmen, a man called Abu Rashid, who was in the, uh, the Marsh Arabs. And I got him and his men uniform and AK-47s and some money. And they were brought into the police. Better to have them in the tent than out. They were right on the Iranian border. And I got the Americans to agree that we would turn them into some sort of local police department. The guy himself was shot dead a few weeks after I'd been working with him. Two gunmen fired uh, from two different locations as he came out of the mosque on a Friday morning. So the army flew me up. I was a deputy chief constable. I went in a little uh, army gazelle helicopter, jumped into an open snatch vehicle, went to the scene. His body had been taken away. There was blood in the street. There should have been, under normal circumstances, house-to-house inquiries, empty cases discovered, firing points established, all the evidence gathered, blah, blah, blah. Within 10 minutes, the army were telling me, there's a tribe on the way here with RPG-7s. We're leaving. If you're not coming with us, you're being left behind. Um, so what do you do? Now, if I'm hauled before some court in 20 years' time and said, why did you not investigate that murder properly? Why did you not hold the scene for five days? Why did you not bring in scientists from all over the world to, to, to deal with that? But this is a very important person who was murdered. Um, the reality is the context was literally life and death. And when people talk about why did the IEC detect this? They only have two pages of notes on a, on someone who was shot in, in Divis or Shangle Road or, or whatever. They forget that sometimes those cops were dealing with three or four murders a day. They can only get there with army patrols. And if the army patrols were leaving, they're not going to stand around in their suits with a little Walther PPK and deal with hundreds of people coming at them with petrol bombs. So... Everything has to be contextualized. Uh, as I say, never for one minute would I excuse any cop or any group of cops for doing anything that they, they knew was wrong. But the context is important. And more than anything, it has to be based on evidence, not conjecture, not um, putting two and two together and coming up with five. Um, so, yes, there have been some cases where cops have been quite rightly um, prosecuted. But in, in my experience they are few and far between most of them uh, in my view were literally heroic but even turning up day after day week after week year after year decade after decade as an OEC officer to me to me that means something don't forget military went home to their barracks after an uh, idiot hour patrol cops went back home to their houses where more were murdered than on duty you know, when you, when you start looking at the statistics, shot driving out of their homes, blown up getting into their cars, shot picking their kids up from school, 
murdered in car parks visiting their child on his first day of birth as a as constable proctor was 41 years ago so you know uh, I, I have nothing but uh, gratitude for the fact that i was able to serve alongside some of those people but again we'd be absolutely scathing against anybody who let the side down sure speaking of letting the side down it must be um Christ above, it must be a, it must be an awful thing to discover as a former UC officer when the likes of um the likes of like Mark Haddock, like information about him that that he was an RUC agent while committing atrocious murders. Likewise, um, uh, likewise, uh, Ken Barrett, Ken Barrett was taken on as a, as an RUC agent after he confessed to murdering Pat Finucane. So yeah, how, 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 does it make, how does it make you feel when, when these things come out as someone who, who regularly defends the RUC? Well, I, I have a very, it might seem quite um, self-protective point of view, but the fact is, uh, John, I chose to be a certain type of RUC officer. And by that I mean someone who was ambitious uh, to get into a, a, a senior position because I believe in leadership, I believe in changing from within. I chose to be a uniformed community-based cop. So believe it or not, I was never a detective and I was never a member of special branch. That makes me quite unusual because if you look at nearly all the other assistant chief constables, um, they have either at some time been involved in the investigating uh, investigation units or uh, special branch and that whole side of policing in a sense at the time some people may have thought oh he's chosen the the softer side even though I was the guy who had been on TV trying to justify why we were dealing with rats or, or public disorder at Drum Cree or Shankill Road or wherever I I always I always improve so I always enjoyed interacting with the public, leading from the front, doing the TV bit, that whole covert side of policing, the special branch side, the running of informants or chizzes as they call like co covert human invest uh, information sources, um, that that's not something I have either expertise in or really would be a a a, a good witness. But that brings me to the point, those who were, I'm not going to name them, they can name themselves and it's probably a, a matter of public record, but every single senior police officer of my rank, assistant chief constable and above, who led special branch, who worked with military intelligence, they are the guys that should be going front and centre. I can tell you about everything I did in, 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 in uniform operations and, and all the stuff that I did in times of change management, developing community policing. Yes, some of it was, was uh, maybe seen as soft, but some was uh, really hard, trying to go into the hardest areas on patrol without the army, having had the the, the the blanket of security of the army, trying to engage with ex-prisoners, working on restorative justice programs, shaking hands with people who'd committed murder and to try to engage. Um, you know, I, I know what it's like to be accused of being... Um, uh, the wrong type of cop at, at different times but I don't want to disappoint you but to be able to try to talk about uh, how informants were handled and, and the, the worst and were the wise and worfers of it would be difficult for me but I am like anybody else to discover 
that there were informants who were either permitted or, or not prevented from continuing to act as active paramilitaries, whether it be in torturing their own protection rackets and right at the top scale involved in, in murders. Terrible, terrible. I know there is this thing about um, the lesser of evils. You know, do, do, do you allow one life to be lost uh, to prevent 10 others being lost? Well, all, all I can tell you is I, I swore an oath as a police officer to protect life. So I would always, be, I would probably be the very wrong type of person to be trying to, trying to make those decisions because I would always believe uh, on short-termism, you know, prevent what you can prevent now as opposed to let something run. Does it um does it interest you? I, I, I think if it was me uh having been the type of cop you were who who didn't deal uh who didn't deal in special branch or or the, the more murky shadowy stuff. Um is there any part of you that's interested in it like now? Like like if a book were to come out, let's say, on that topic exactly of like of RUC special branch and like using the likes of uh of Ken Barrett and, and Mark Haddock uh, would would it interest you? Would would it be intriguing to find out what went on um in in that part of the organization? Oh, of course, and I mean, and 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 again, I don't want this to come out the wrong that I'm somehow distancing myself from them. Because don't forget, every, I mean, I think it was both during Ronnie Flanagan's time and Hugh Ord's time. So the transition period of being in charge of the RUC to being in charge of PSNI and then trying to move the PSNI into the shape that we wanted it to be, more representative, more accountable, more partnership, uh, problem solving and so on. Um, I remember pointing out that we were desperate in the sense that, you know, to be a totally cohesive top team, you had me working out of a little porter cabin and ported down in the middle of an army camp. I was a regional commander for the whole of South, of the whole southern end of Northern Ireland. There would have been special branch officers working to me, but not reporting to me, if that makes sense. They're, they're, they would have been going direct to headquarters, to, working with the MI5s and the MI6s and the other units, uh, and probably only the chief constable would have been aware. Um, but you had me as the head of one region in Portadown. You had the head of crime in Knocklagone, a part of Belfast. You had the chief constable in Garnham, in, in sorry, in, in uh, Knock. You would have had the uh, head of personnel in another location. Um, you would have had the ACC Belfast in another location. So we didn't even see each other. You know, we didn't have Zoom uh, in those days or anything else. So one of my recommendations, which was taken up, was that didn't matter what time of the day it was, should it be six o'clock, seven o'clock, we should meet every morning to share information. And I wanted to know what was going on. Uh, likewise, I wanted people to know what I was up to. Um, we sat on three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Uh, and I do feel responsible for making that suggestion just as one way in which we became a bit more cohesive. But I don't subscribe to this um, sort of bland type, you know, a force within a force that there was inner circles and so on. But there was no doubt there were tight lines so I was very aware of my job. My job was uniform policing, working with the military, trying to provide um, protection and prevention of both terrorism and ordinary crime 
in all the areas I was responsible for. But I was also very well aware that there was an intelligence side, an intelligence-led side, which I was not privy to. I mean, I, I make I make no apology for saying this. One of my jobs for three years was to be the, the staff officer to the chief constable. That was from 1993 to 1996. And when the head of special branch came in to speak to the chief constable, I had to leave the room. When an intelligence report was sent down to the chief constable, it was in two envelopes. I was allowed to open the front, the first envelope, and take the second one into him. And there would have been a very tight triumvirate of the Secretary of State, the GOC, the General Officer Commanding the Army, and the Chief Constable, who would have been, in a sense, that inner circle. Each one of them advised, obviously, by their own um, heads of intelligence. So there were very tight lines, very tight circles of command. Uh, I would never absolve, absolve myself, and I hope no none of your listeners think I'm trying to absolve myself of any aspect of RUC policing. I was a proud RUC officer, but I had a particular set of roles, a particular set of skills, a particular set of responsibilities. Um, and, you know, to go right back to your, to your question, would I be interested to know what went on? Of course. There was that type, you know, it was it a dirty war? Yeah, well, I don't want to be part of anything dirty. I I, I understand you need to be clever. But, you know, I, I always want to believe still do believe that the, the cops were the good guys but were we uh, you know so lily white that we rode into town on a white horse with a white hat and, and, and the bad guys just picked us off no of course you needed people uh, with special skills who could infiltrate who could use technical means surveillance, wire tapping all that phone bugging and all. of course it was important a anything that the, the state can do and the police can do to prevent life being taken, um, I'm all for. But yes, if there if there were mistakes made and there were crude things that had to be improved, of course that, that that's the lesson that needs to be learned. Uh, very good. Okay, so on a personal level, you you must have had a you you you've described some of them, but but you've had countless days where uh, the day at work was like incredibly traumatic, and it would I I can only imagine how much it would take out of you. I mean, we're talking about riots, seeing seeing your your fellow officers get hurt or killed yourself nearly hurt or killed shot at um what what's it like what's it like going home uh just going home after that and having to yeah i have to decompress do you do do you vent about it do you tell a, a compressed version and then keep the rest of yourself how, how did it go uh well it's good but my first marriage didn't last my my kids came with me so i was going through the last few years of my police career with two teenagers in the house, which was pretty tough going. But I remember when they were young, you know, you 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 genuinely didn't think you might get home that night. You know, people were being killed all around you, and whether it was a twelve-hour shift or a sixteen-hour shift, I, I especially my daughter, she's a woman now in her forties, but um, I would have picked her up out of her cot. And just give her a little hug. And just let her know that she means something to me. And if I don't come home tomorrow, you had a dad to be proud of, that that, that type of thing. Likewise, my son, you know, different. Maybe the son, you're, you're tougher maybe with boys. But 
you know, I, I want my son and daughter to realize that um, their dad did come through a lot. Uh, he's a big softy now, but he wasn't then. And I think that's one of the things that happens when you get old. You allow yourself to cry. Uh, you allow yourself to get it out. Uh, in my day, it was always about fitness. I kept myself very fit. I ran marathons. I played football. I played squash. I was always of the opinion, you know, if you're the fittest one in the jungle, you're going you're gonna to survive. Uh, a lot of cops maybe drank and ate too much and all that sort of stuff. You know, the old fat donut eating cop um, uh, image. I, I believed in fitness. Uh, I always had a faith. You know, I would still say the odd prayer. I'm not a great Bible thumper. I don't mean it like that. But I always had a faith uh, that I was doing the right thing. And I had a faith in my colleagues that we'd pull ourselves out of a scrap. I've been in some scrapes, all right. You know, we've had, we've had to um, fight our way out of things. And, and uh, you know, when, when you're caught and someone's trying to take a gun off you and you're surrounded by a crowd, it, there's nothing more... Uh, frightening. I've been shot at three times. I've been beaten up. I've been hospital hospitalized. I've been through a lot of trauma, you know. And and uh, you still keep bouncing back. But last week I buried a, a police officer, her friend, uh, his my my friend's son, and the bagpipes and the guard of honor and so on. And I I, I, I could see what it was taking out of the young police officers because it was so strange. Whereas we were doing this all the time. And uh, I, I spoke to the cops, even though I'm an old retired man. Uh, I said, you know, you, you have permission to cry. In my day, you wouldn't, you think, uh, some IRA guy or some UVF man's watching this on TV and he's not going to see me cry, you know, stiff upper lip and all that. Um, now we're in a different world, I think. I'm not uh, talking about, you know, wokery and all that, I, but I, I do think mental well-being and, and all those things are important. And, and I think it's it's okay for a cop to show uh softness not weakness but softness and uh yeah i i i did go through a hell of a lot and there's no doubt uh, i'm a survivor um you know i i think i'm very fortunate i've been injured a few times and not always uh through police duties but you know i i can bounce back but i know some people have been through things uh and have found it very hard you know they've been traumatized by it maybe it's just the way i was brought up i don't know but i, I just think i'm one of the lucky ones and uh, that's why I have a soft spot for the the police widows, the disabled. You know, we have guys still who have lost limbs, are still uh, proudly wearing their RUC green blazers and medals, wanting to show people around our memorial garden and tell them the story. And I, I think that is, I, I know you've been looking at some big issues, political um, issues around collusion, um, professionalism, supervision, all those important things, strategic issues around policing. <clears throat> but for me, it's all about the humanity as well. Uh, why do you get involved in the police? How can you keep yourself sane when you're dealing with child abuse and animal torture? You know, I mean, it's not, it's not easy being a cop at times. <clears throat> so you've got to believe you're doing the right things. And I think training and supervision has a lot to do with it as well. I was going to say, I mean, literally, like, cops are like like when ordinary when, when people in ordinary society don't want to deal with the particular problem when it's so bad the cops are the ones <laughs> like it gets left to they're the very last kind of line so yeah they have to see some of the dredges uh the dredges of uh of what of what humans can do some of the worst behaviors um yeah. I, I won't i won't keep it i won't keep it too much longer we uh we, we obviously spoke about times when your life was endangered on the job but you had um you had like specific threats you had actual assassination um 
plots against you, g- g- given you were high up and stuff. Uh, at one stage, uh, I, I heard in another interview that you you even lived in the police station for like nine months, and yeah. then even in the garden, even you're at home doing a bit of gardening, you have to have a you have to have your gun next to you, like. Yeah, I mean it's funny. My life's probably idyllic now because I can walk about with a dog and, and uh, not worry who's going to pull up behind me in a car or whatever, you know, uh, not, uh, maybe not say more in case I tempt fate. I'm sure there's still some people out there of scores to settle, but um, no, it wasn't easy. I, I moved into, uh, I was a young chief inspector. I'd only been in the job about nine years. So back in that day, you know, that would have been quite high profile becoming a chief inspector with nine years service sent down to Fermanagh, working on the border. And of course, because of my background, I wanted to be out and about, out with the army, the police station, I had three police stations blown up in six months. I went out and stayed overnight with the guys and, and made sure that, um, you know, you're raising morale or doing whatever you had to do to get things back to normal. Um, then you go on TV and, and, and uh, condemn the terrorist attacks or do whatever you had to do to build morale up. So things I got her notice very quickly, you know, a Belfast man of my age, my rank, pontificating on TV. So the, the, the branch, the special branch got information that I was going to be taken out. <clears throat> and despite the fact that I just moved my family there, bought a house there, got the kids into new schools, um, I was whisked out and had to live in a police station for undercover for nine months, which was horrible knowing that my kids were in a place where my danger was, and yet I was in a safe place. It's a bit like when I, I was injured back in the, the 80s and put into a training branch job for a while. Well, my old father was 62 and his uh, vehicle was riddled with machine gun fire. That, that again, is one of those things that bothered me for years that, you know, why is he there when I should be there? I'm younger and fitter. Um, but yes, I remember one day in my garden and uh, a group of guys came. They were actually working for a money lending team, I think. One of my neighbours, who I didn't even know, owed money. And uh, somebody sent some heavies to deal with him. And they mistook me for him. They jumped out of the car and I was I had no shirt on. I was just digging in the garden. And I remember holding the shovel up as if to fend off bullets because I was waiting for the guns to, to, to appear. But I always kept my gun in a bucket if you know if you're in the, out in the garden, you know you can't wear a holster or whatever. But I always had it had it near me, and uh, you know I slept it under my pillow. I mean, uh, but that was the norm, you know, false number plates, false occupation, uh, whatever you had to do to to, to survive. And uh, of course, we'd be fooling ourselves too because in Northern Ireland, it's such a small place. Every everybody knows everybody, you know. And, and if you want to follow someone home. Uh, it's not too difficult if you want to find out where somebody works and, and sadly that's why so many cops lost their lives um, in soft situations they were set up or they were let down by information being released that it shouldn't be or whatever the case may be so I'm not one of those people that believes in crying on parade I think you know it was a, it was a privilege to do the job I'm one of the lucky ones I'm still around but I just wish those who still try to demonise the police, still try to justify the activities that led to the deaths and destruction of not just police, but civilians and, and ruined this community. Go back to what I said at the beginning. If you want to convince people that there is an alternative, 
to a partitioned island. You can do it without killing people. <laughs> you know, what, what's your plan? What's what's the attractiveness? The the old nonsense about you know one more slog and we get the Brits out. It's it, it's it's not of this world. You know, it, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, and I'm a cop. I believe in evidence. Show me the evidence. What what would be better if Northern Ireland was back in a New Ireland, which was part of the EU or part of a new future? What, what, what would it look like? How would I be treated? How would my family be treated? Um, economically, politically, religiously, whatever. What what what's what's the socially? What's what what's the advantage? Do you really think killing people is going to get you there? Not, not not a chance. To not be chance. Um, to be fair though, I mean, yeah, I I agree with you, but I think a lot of people at the time would have felt that, like, you you know, Catholics and and nationalists w- would have felt that, like, the RUC is against me, the army is against me, the government's against me, and there's things like, um, I think it's called gerrymandering, where where yeah like, yeah like voting blocks, but 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 I think I, I I can understand someone saying, look, the legitimate. Uh, democratic type means of of getting of getting freedom as they saw it are being blocked and are being hindered so so then then even 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 if you're violent for a bit then at least it can kind of bring bring the other side to the table would you understand that on on some level i i understand it and if i was a teenager i'd be even supportive you know but i'm an old man when i look at people like jerry fit and john hume they were the people that got it right. No disrespect to Martin McGuinness or, or I don't like speaking ill of the dead, you know, but murdering people. Uh, well, how does that bring people of Ireland together? And yeah, it's okay saying that the RUC, the army are against me. If the state, and this is where I probably have a healthy cynicism against most politicians, it's not the, it's not the cops that drew, drew up the law. It's not the cops who, who uh, designed the border. You know, it's the pure old cops. Look what happened to the RIC, for goodness sake, you know. They were slaughtered and, 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 and uh, treated so badly. And and yet, I, I suspect most of them were like RUC officers just doing the job. Um, you know, there's, there's something cardly about shooting a cop who's doing traffic duty uh, or, or helping kids cross the roads or running a, a youth club or whatever, a football club, as they tried to do earlier this year. Um, how does that bring United, uh, bring Ireland any more united, uh, you know, or people together? And, and, and sadly, then people do go to the extremes and then we do start voting for politicians who are uh, extreme as opposed to moderate. But, um, you know, what do I know? I'm only an old cop. <laughs> Very good. Um, t- thank you very much for all your time. I might ask you one more thing now. Um, uh, as 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 someone who who's very familiar with Northern Ireland during the Troubles, if there was like an area in particular where you'd say like was the toughest to be a cop, uh, even like a general area, what uh, what would you say it was? Um, I don't know if there was one. I mean, obviously South Armagh. I think had fifty two casualties. 52 officers killed in, in a relatively small geographic area. But in terms of trying to deal on a day-to-day basis, um, I worked in what was the old B division, which was Springfield Road, Grosvenor Road. And you were dealing with, you know, the, the interfaces between the Shankle and the Falls. You were patrolling Bally Murphy, Anderson Town. Um, everything, even going to, I remember going to a terrible sexual crime against a woman in her 80s. 
who had been sodomized and, 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 and so on, and even trying to get help to that woman. Uh, we were getting heavily pounded, uh, soldiers being attacked, and indeed one soldier killed. So um, there, there's some places that definitely, you know, every day was a challenge. I was also a sergeant in Tennant Street, which covered the Shankill Road, and it was a, a tough place. But, yeah, for me, because I am a Belfast guy, um, it, it was the, the tough, ultra-loyalist, ultra-Republican uh, parts of Belfast that personally gave me the biggest challenge, you know. Um, thank you very much. Um, th- thank you for, for, for staying 90 minutes. I, I, I appreciate every minute of it. Um, is there anything? Uh, is there anything you want to leave us with there? Just a, as like a final thought. Uh, not, not really. I suppose that question about how did you survive or how did you cope. Um, I do like people to know that you know I really do appreciate the support that I was given by many good people, whether they be within the job or outside the job. And when people say, "How did you get through?" I was about the, you know the three F's: faith, fitness, and family, and yeah, I had, a, I, had a, I had a faith, as I say, wouldn't be the first time I said a little prayer going up White Rock Road, especially if someone had fired an RPG-7 the day before. And, um, But I also had a faith in my training and a faith in my colleagues that, you know, the vast majority were good people trying to do the right thing. Family, absolutely. I'm very fortunate my family uh, were right behind me. In many ways, the police become a family also. Uh, but then fitness, you know, if you keep yourself fit and you look after healthy body, healthy mind, I think that's important, and a lot of people didn't get through. Um, so all I can do is say, you know, thank God for the experiences that I had and the fact that I've come through them, and I really hope that the current generation of police officers, both sides of the border, um, get the support from the decent people that they deserve and obviously get the support when they're putting the others away because whether it be um, crime gangs, from outside this island, or whether it be internal terrorists or criminals or whatever, it's the it's only the police that are going to protect the public. So give them all the support we can. And yet at the same time, the police have to be realistic. It takes real courage to give evidence in this situation. I'm very, sorry now. Um, I, I I just remembered what one question if I could ask the if sure. you, sorry. Okay, so um, the the other officer, the other REC officer who who actually said who who told me to say hello to you from him was Colin Breen. He uh, <laughs> he once told me of a story where um, uh, where uh, a man who was driving the exact same type of car, color, make, model as him was assassinated. Um, with the with the assassin thinking it was thinking it was him. The only difference was uh. The only difference was in the um uh, the the number plate. There was like an eight and a three w- was different. He 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 told me then one time um that when he was when he was off duty he was in a pub and uh, he recognized two two men who 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 he said were very very serious players and they recognized him. And yeah. They, they sent down two points to him to uh just just to to know like like yeah I, I know who you are. Has anything like that ever happened to you? Have you bumped into anyone off duty? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, one particular IRA man, I arrested him three times. I arrested him when I was a constable, a sergeant, and an inspector. And I remember him, uh, uh, I'll not mention his name or say too much more because I mean, people could work out immediately. But anyway, let's just say he didn't like me and I didn't like him. And I remember I'd uh, 
just got a nice new car with a nice golden retriever in the back and my two kids and we had a, went, a day off, went to the seaside. And as we pulled into the car park, this guy pulls in behind me and he gets out with a few heavies and he makes a very obvious point of looking at my number plate and looking at my number plate and how you doing, Mr. White? <laughs> how are you, Mr. White? You know, so I know your name and I know your car. I've got the number plate. I know where you're going, you know, and I just laugh it off and walk away. And of course, as soon as he goes around the corner, we're back into the car and away somewhere else. And uh, you get the number plates changed and so on. I mean, those those sort of things happened. You know, I remember going to Queen's University. I did a master's degree there and uh, being uh, asked to go somewhere. And I walked into the room. I was walking up the stairs to the room. To meet the lecture on a one, it was, it was a one to one thing, and I just had a horrible feeling I was being set up. And the door behind me slammed, and a guy came around the corner at the top of the stairs with a, a, a like a bag. And I was just waiting for him to pull the machine gun out or something. And I got my gun out first, and the poor guy behind me who had nothing to do with anything, and the poor guy in front of me had nothing to do with anything that you know. They almost fainted, and I felt so stupid. But you know, sometimes you just do these things. It's a, it's it's a reaction. You you think it's either them or me, and uh, in that occasion, you I know, mean, it, it was a total false alarm. But I mean, that two or three seconds of panic, uh, that this is it. You know, I'm not coming home tonight. And uh, oh, listen, I I could bore you with all sorts of stuff. You know, I mean, it's just it's it's. Um, it, it, it happens, you know. You, you you can't go through a career in the police in Northern Ireland without um, having a few uh, sleepless nights or a few scares, you know. Um. Again, uh, th- thank you again. Um. P- appreciate all your time, all, all your insight, everything you shared. Um. Yeah. The the we we've been meaning to sit down for a while, so I'm, I'm glad we finally could. Uh. Th- thank well, you. I appreciate it, and and I, I wish you every success. And you know, there's nothing to be hidden from. Uh, nothing to be scared of telling the truth. I mean, uh, here's a quick one I'll leave you with. When I was in West Belfast, one of the fittest and fearless guys I had, I used to call him a Jack Russell because whenever we were getting hit, say we were in an armoured vehicle driving through Ballymurphy or wherever, and we'd be hit with paint bombs which cover the windscreen, then you can't see where you're going and you're having to pile out to try to clean the window. Meanwhile, petrol bombs are coming in, maybe shots are being fired or whatever. This guy would always been the first one out to um, try to make an arrest. And like really a grown police officer with all the kit you're wearing, body armor and everything else, to try to catch a teenage kid, it's it's not easy. And uh, uh, But this guy, he was always the first one out and, and he surprised me by telling me he was leaving the police. He'd bought a pub in Spain. And I said, really? His name was Phil. It's probably 40 years ago now. It's actually 39 years ago. I said, Phil, you'll be a great loss. You know, you're always the fearless. You're the Jack Russell. You'd have tackled anything. And he said to me, you know, boss, I was so afraid that you and my mates would see how afraid I was. That's why I did it. It was overcompensating. Yeah, so... We're all kids at heart, you know. He was so afraid of being seen to be afraid that he had to act brave. 
And, you know, I think there's a little lesson in there that sometimes you just have, you know, when you put the shield on or you put the the cap on, uh, you just have to act out the part. And um, at the end of it, you know, when you take the hat off, you take the body armor off, you're just the same little kid you were to begin with. And hopefully you, you've learned the right things, whether it be from your mother or father or from your sergeant or whoever. But, um, you know, in my view, it's an honor to be a police officer and it's a, those that dishonored it. Um, shame on them. But, the vast majority of our UC men and women, uh, I'm proud to be associated with them. Okay. One of the things that I valued more than anything was hard work, decency, and going the extra mile. And I honestly believed, I think it was the military taught me this, that it's always the weakest that gets shot. So if you're on a patrol, whether you're in Vietnam or Korea, if you're seen by the enemy as the sloppy one, you know, the guy that's not switched on, he's not taking cover, he's not, he's trying to get a sneaky smoke or whatever, you're the one the sniper's going to take out. Was if you're the one that's, excuse my language, shit hot, you know, you're on the you're on the ball, you will survive. So I, I trained my sections, particularly in West Belfast, that we had to be the best. And we were driving down the Falls Road one day and cut into a street. There'd been a lot of shooting, a lot of uh, murders at that time. And a, a young cocky constable had just joined me. Now, he was extremely good looking, extremely cocky. He was good with the women, you name it. You know, he'd, 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 he'd put you in mind. What, what do you call the guy, um, the Irish Farrell, the actor? Um, uh, Colin, Colin Farrell. Colin Farrell, yeah. You know, that sort of, you know, Tall, dark, and handsome. And uh, he was so cocky that, um, anyway, we're driving along the street. And I sometimes would get into the back of the Land Rover. I would sit in the front passenger side. I'd sometimes get into the back to let the constables know that I could do whatever they were doing. So whether jumping out, taking cover, doing vehicle checkpoints, blah, blah, blah. And I was in the back of the vehicle. And you can only see there's little portholes which you open up to fire through if you have to. I said, Constable, what street are we in? And he sort of cocky laugh. Ha ha, that's the Falls Road, Inspector. As if like, are you stupid? This is the Falls Road. I said, yes, I know we're on the Falls Road, but what is this street we're in? Uh, I said, you don't know, so you don't. I said, who lives in number 42? And he looked at me as if I was bad. I said, you don't know who lives in number 42. He's one of the most... Notorious IRA RPG seven man. I said, are you, "Are you telling me you've been here a couple of weeks and you don't know that?" I said, "If we get hit tonight, and I'm lying bleeding to death, and you're the only one that can get to the radio, and I die and your mates die because you don't know where we are and can't call for help, you're no good to me." And I humiliated him. And within about two weeks, that guy had produced a folder this thick with photographs of every street, photographs of every suspect, maps, code names, everything that you would need to survive. And he went on to become quite a senior person and counter-terrorist, uh, a uniform counter-terrorist unit, not the special bands. And he told me I was an old bastard, but that 
I'd learned so much and then I had saved him. Now, I I love that story because other people who were there that night keep reminding me of it as well because I've seen so many young guys go off the rails. You know, they are earning good money. There's a bit of kudos about being a cop. Women tend to be attracted to certain guy, you know, the macho cop and everything else. Uh, and some of them don't reach their full potential. That guy went on to be a brilliant cop, highly respected by his colleagues. And I, I'm delighted. There were three or four people that were there that night, and he himself had admitted. It was because I was such a bastard to him that it, it made him what he is. And in his words, you saved me. And if that if that epitomizes anything of what I tried to do in my time, uh, that's it. Keep me alive. Keep ourselves alive. Do our job. Act professionally. Go the extra mile. Train, train, train. Educate, educate, educate. All that sort of stuff. So that's that's the lesson I think is still uh, uh, still the same message that should be told today. It's hard for me to watch the PSNI, what it went through there in the summer with the morale, the lack of collegiality or even comradeship. I think it's back on the rails a little bit better than it was, but for an old guy like me, that was tragedy to see what happened within Northern Ireland policing over the last sort of six months. But uh, anyway, I thought I should leave you with that one. No, very good. Good, good story. I appreciate it. Very good. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, maybe maybe we'll speak again sometime. Uh, again, I hope so, John. And I wish you every success in what you're doing. Thank you very much. Thank you.